You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 231 for January 25th, 2022. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about all those weird and interesting tools archaeologists use in the field. So sharpen up your Japanese garden hoe because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Bill in California. Good morning. Doug in Scotland. Good evening. <laughs> and Andrew in California. <laughs> hey, how's it going, everyone? And also Heather in California. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. And much like Sarah Palin, I can see California from my back door, but I'm in Lake Havasu City, Arizona. So <laughs> to paraphrase Sarah Palin, I guess I should say, which is something no one should ever Sarah. do. <laughs> How warm is it in uh, Lake Havasu in January? Are we pushing 70s and 80s or are we all the way up in the hundreds? We didn't hit the 80s, but it's been a pleasant low 70s and and some of the highs have been in the mid 60s. So it's actually been uh, it's been a nice week to be here. This is our ninth day here. We're leaving today and we're heading down to Yuma where I expect it to be a bit warmer. But uh, yeah, it's. It's been it's been <laughs> decent. It's been decent here, to be honest. The nights have been pretty cold, you know, in the 40s, low 50s sometimes. But it's been a it's been a good event. So I don't know if I've ever uh, heard an archaeologist ever <laughs> use the word pleasant and then describe Havasu or Yuma. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess the people who are listening in Yuma, they, they probably differ. But whenever I was doing archaeology in Yuma, it was never pleasant plus Yuma. For our international listeners, that's uh, that's 21 to 23 degrees. For like the rest yes. of the world. In yeah. January, though. In January. Right. In the Northern Hemisphere in January. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking at temps in Yuma. And Yuma, for those, again, that don't know, it's in Arizona. It's basically on the California-Arizona border and the border of Mexico. Like Yuma is right on the border of Mexico, California, and Arizona. And I did a project there in April time frame about three years ago, give or take, with another company. And uh, it, it wasn't too bad. We we're actually wearing jackets in the morning. It was cold uh, in the mornings, a typical desert. You know, it was cold in the mornings and then hot as balls in the afternoon. So it was, uh, yeah, but but I like that. I like that temperature swing. I don't necessarily like the super hot stuff. But anyway, uh, so before we start, we're going to talk about crazy weird tools today. This is uh, Andrew's topic, and we'll let him kick that off. But I was just editing the Life in Ruins podcast, and somebody was talking about some stuff. And if you're hearing this podcast, go back and check out episode 91 of the Life in Ruins podcast. It's with Chris Johnston. I should probably say that in the title. And they're just making a comment about... I guess the publications that come out of Paleo-Indian research and Plains archaeology research and how it needs to be more public facing in that, you know, it's, it's more what does it all mean questions and less bean counter type questions like they're tired of seeing papers that have debitage counts and stuff like that in them. And I somewhat agree with that. Like, I don't think you have to have your debitage counts in the paper, to be honest. I mean, it's got to be recorded somewhere, but maybe the, the the journal publication that you have about that is not necessarily the place to do that. Although if you're in a journal that has the supplemental materials as like a download or a, you know, a, a separate website or a link that you can go to or something like that, maybe put it there. Right. But not as like a, a huge stupid table uh, within the paper. That being said, I was getting the impression 
and I was hoping others didn't get the impression that they were saying we're recording too much, right? And and this is more academic archaeology because that um, Chris Johnston, well, he works for a firm. It's not really a it's kind of a CRM firm, but they do more research and stuff. But it, it's more of an academic style archaeology that they're talking about. But in CRM, I just want to make the point because I've said this before. It is our jobs to record literally everything in the field that we possibly can because we are probably the last ones to see it. We're probably the last ones to see it before it gets bulldozed, before it gets blown up by a mine, before it gets bombs dropped on it, before there's a Walmart over the top of it. Okay, so it is our jobs to record everything. And then hopefully later on, either we or someone else will have time to do some analysis. Heather? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I I think I might agree with them, although I haven't obviously heard the, the episode but I think it, it should be both, just like you're saying. Sure. We have to record. And I think I know that we do have, you know, budgets that we have to work within. But maybe then that means, you know, as a manager, I'm always looking at, you know, trying to balance the fact that we need to get all that da- data. We do have a responsibility, just like you said. The one thing is that I think is hard for a lot of us archaeologists is to get the data tabulated before it goes either back into the ground, which is now happening a lot. Curation isn't, you know, we're, we're getting very limited in our ability to curate actually in facilities and some Native American, uh, quite a few representatives are preferring that we curate back in the ground. So once we yeah. count it, that's it. I mean, we can't do this yeah. again. So I think tabulating and getting everything down on paper is the most important thing. And I think it's hard for a lot of archaeologists to just stop there. We want to find everything that (laughs) all those numbers mean, but we can't all the time. And so I think that we need to do, I think the counting, just like you said, the bean counting, quote unquote, is the most important thing to do. Even if it means that somebody else is going to do something with that data later down the road, at least it's actually, you know, it's counted and, and documented. Now, I think a lot of times there are a lot of people that just, you know, focus on those numbers and how many talks and papers that we've read or listened to that are that are really boring. And that's on the person who's presenting. I mean, you got to decide whether or not whether, you know, what you're presenting is interesting. Mm -hmm. I guess people don't have to listen to it, you know, but I don't think everything needs to be put into a journal and everything needs to be, you know, maybe we should be more selective and that's where the selection should be, not on whether or not we actually count it. Cause like you said, it has to be done. Indeed. Doug. I'm slightly torn on this. Like the, the public engagement, the public engagement side of me is like, yeah, you, you know, when you're presenting this, what we, what we're doing, we're doing for not just ourselves, but for others. And, you know, when you're presenting your results, most people are not going to understand raw archaeological data. You can't just be like, here's an Excel sheet, enjoy. And so I do think there does need to be some sort of interpretation that highlights what is actually found and that actually shows you know, is forward facing to everyone else says, you know, this is why this is important. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm slightly torn because, you know, interpretations should change and they probably might be the least. It's a weird one because in a sense of data, they're probably some of the least important stuff. Because, I mean, guys just go back like 100 years ago and like the interpretations of archaeologists back then 
wild, crazy, and super racist. <laughs> like, no matter how, how you think about yeah. it, like, or sexist, or pretty much all the ists, you can pretty much run down that list and those those old interpretations are quite out of date. So you actually need the raw data. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people these days also sort of go off on wild, crazy, interpretive, I don't know, rants. I don't know how to describe it, but you guys all know what I'm talking about, where some people have taken some data and have just stretched it to the limit of, well, actually, not even archaeologists. You can you can apply this to pseudo-archaeologists, and so I'm not calling anyone out on this that's in the field. But, you know, pseudo-archaeology people will take data and be like, Atlantis, guys, this pottery proves Atlantis which is totally mm -hmm. crazy. And yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm just torn. Like I, I agree the, the process should be data. I do think we should be putting stuff out there, but uh, I don't know. Maybe there's like a, a 1090 rule or 95 five rule or something like that. Like 5% <laughs> of the project should be putting out some sort of interpretation if it's valid uh, but maybe it's not the main focus. I don't know. What do you guys? I, I see Bill has a hand. He, he probably ha will say something much better than me. I just going to say, I did, I did want to clarify really quick. I am not against the interpretation. I think that that is important. It's just, just like what Doug is saying. We can't just go down this rabbit hole. And sometimes as archaeologists, we have that temptation that we want to do that. And there's, you know, there has to be a limit. So if there's something to be said and something to interpret there, then obviously that needs to be done. But sometimes you're not going to be able to address every single thing that that data set says, and you have to know when to stop. But at least the numbers are still there for somebody else to revisit. Yeah, I agree about um, recording as much as absolutely possible. And even collecting things that if you're doing an excavation that seem like they're planeware. Because another thing that ends up happening a lot, especially with historical archaeology, is the weigh and toss method where it's, you know, here's all this rusty mm -hmm. metal. It's this many ounces or this many grams. And then, you know, we're going to just put it back in there because that stuff's going to decay or, you know, we have X amount of you know, tons of planeware. I, I mean, I'm, I'm also someone who's uh, a fan of, you know, keeping a certain amount of things or, uh, you know, making sure that you have a representative sample, even if it's flat window glass or something like that, as long as it's not going to decay and, and turn into dust, because I just read an article this week and I can't remember what the journal is. I think it's European archaeology, but it was some folks who reevaluated these late Neolithic sherds to find out that they had evidence of uh, copper smelting, which puts pushes back, possibly pushes back, mm -hmm. you know, metallurgy in this part of Denmark, you know, 1500 years. And it was stuff that was excavated yeah. and collected in 1987. And if these items had just been left there or left behind because they weren't decorative and they didn't necessarily uh, show any kind of purposes for what the research design was, was saying, then we wouldn't have that data. We wouldn't be able to look at it, you know, uh, 30 years later and use XRF to determine that people were actually uh, forging metal way earlier. So I'm also a fan of that too. Mm -hmm. I would add just a one thing to sort of tack on there as well as to just say, you know, sometimes, especially in CRM, we end up with results that you can't interpret. Like you can't add a big, long descriptive narrative about. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, like, so field survey and stuff, you end up with isolated finds. And uh, mm -hmm. or you just end up with like a random ditch or a pit, fire pit or something like that, or, or one or two flakes or, you know, uh, a random can midden out in the middle of nowhere. And, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you could 
do a massive survey or a huge excavation and come up with almost nothing. And I think that's okay to also say, yeah, there doesn't need to be a really long description and interpretation about a canman you found out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Sometimes we just find stuff that maybe later it makes sense. So maybe that ditch, you know, there's an excavation later to, I don't know, the, the plot next to it. And you realize that ditch was part of an irrigation system that only came out because you excavated near it. And that's cool. And you can interpret, interpret stuff later. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what your guys' thoughts are, but a lot of what we do, I don't want to put a percentage on it, but you you don't find a lot. Um, and that's, that's interesting as well, but you know, a lot of a lot of CRM or development-led archaeology, you, there's just not going to be anything to write about. There's nothing to write home about. Mm-hmm. Well, you're breaking Bill's heart, not wanting him to re- record a can mid in, in depth because that's what he lives for. So, you know, it is what it is. Well, I, I guess. guess I'll just agree <laughs> with what you guys have been saying. Um, Thanks, I think that uh, you should count your beans. But then make your beans interesting. That's all you got to do. I'm demanding. <laughs> I want both. You know what I mean? And again, how hard is it? You know, yeah. you, you you do your good science Indeed. and then you ask some cool questions and then you make an interesting presentation out of it. You know, and and uh, I, I do think that there is a natural push or uh, actually I should say unnatural push these days to do less real nuts and bolts scientific work you know to to cover it with a sheen of theory or you know oh well we already know or hey my big brain doesn't need that you know and we have to Mm -hmm. stay on the on the nuts and bolts of what we do and i totally agree with chris at the top you you gotta you gotta record the man you gotta record the cans and the glass bits you know that's what it's about underneath it all heather i was just gonna say one one this reminds me, as soon as I heard Andrew's voice, I remember us sitting in the back of a talk about a guy who found a kettle and it was like the bottom of the kettle was just destroyed. And you look at the picture and it really just looked like somebody had left it on the fire too long. I remember we were sitting back there and this guy <laughs> went on for maybe, uh, he must have gone on for I mean, well, his entire talk about how he thought it was ritually killed. Right. <laughs> do you remember that, Andrew? I do. You know, it's funny. I remember the. What kind of a site was this, though? It it was it wasn't was not ritually killed. It was I think it was on the islands. Yeah, I remember yeah. the <laughs> feeling of going, "Oh my god!" You know, like that's Grandma's <laughs> kettle that was on the fire. It was on the Channel Islands. <laughs> I leaned over and I said, or maybe he left it on the fire too long or she left it on the fire too long. And it's just like, you know, sometimes people try to make something out of nothing because first of all, either their perspective is very limited, you know, they're, they're a student and they're desperate to find meaning in this, you know, and that's the funniest part. That's when you like make your beans more than they really are. It's like, dude, those are just regular old Navy beans, dude. Okay, they're just regular yeah. beans. Yeah, <laughs> just a kettle nice. that's left on the fire a, too long, or it's just a kettle that maybe they should have not left. It's a it's a kettle. Yeah, hmm. it's a kettle that has found its purpose and outserved right. its purpose, and it's. But, 
I, I love that example because it just shows the balance. We need the balance of of both. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, uh, hey, man, you could record the kettle, but then uh, on the flip side, you don't push it into some odd, you know, like <laughs> ritualistic explanation because it's just not it's not reasonable. It's not acting in good faith, which is what I say all the time. Well, speaking of gone on too long, I said we were going to do five minutes on this. and We did an entire segment. So let's take a break. And, you know, this is just typical of archaeologists, though. Like we wanted to do something for five minutes and we do it for 17. So that's what you do. Let's take a break and we will be back with Andrew's topic on the other side. Back in a minute. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on Pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P A L E O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. Welcome back to episode 231 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And we're going to get to our topic finally in segment two. And it was Andrew's topic today, and it's weird tools. So, Andrew, let's uh, introduce your thoughts on this and, and really why you wanted to do this topic there must be something in your head that's that's bringing this to the forefront sure the reason why i wanted to do this weird tool thing is well it's the beginning of the semester and i was putting together my syllabus for my students and i'm listing the tools that they need i started to think you know this is the regular list oh yeah trowel and okay a whisk broom and we all know the list Mm -hmm. but if I think back to my experiences in archaeology there's been so often that there's been some weird tool that some some person has either in the field doing excavation in survey or in the lab that everyone loves you know it's never on the list it's usually just something yeah. really odd maybe they found it in grandpa's garage but ev- and then everyone <laughs> wants it you know everyone's like hey man hey where's where's that uh whisk broom you know the blue one you know the one with the really hard bristles mm-hmm. that one where is it you know, and the whole project kind of like circles around on some of these weird tools because they just happen to work really great. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. that most of us probably have those experiences as well. Most, you know, most people here. And I thought we could talk a bit about some of those tools that, that are never on the list, but that we tend to gravitate to, or that we've seen have worked really well, or that we've just seen other people use that are just really odd. You know, you'll see this person using this thing and you're like, how, what, what, what are they doing with that? You know? And so I just, I have, I started to think about it and I made, and I made a list and, and, you know, I'll give, I'll give one or two and I just want to open it up to everyone. And I thought we could talk about, you know, these times that we've experienced this and I thought people would enjoy that example that I, that I just gave about the whisk broom. That's a real thing. Mm-hmm. I, I remember on a project that, that there was this one whisk broom that had like really, really strong bristles So you could kind of dig with it. Oh, yeah. And so everyone wanted the blue whisk broom. And my other that I'll just start with is one of my students several years ago accidentally ordered on Amazon a trowel that was way too big. Like (laughs) the the blade part was twice the size. It was like 10 inches long. Just the blade. Right. So it was this huge thing. 
He got all kinds of flack for every single joke about, oh, I see you have a very big trowel, you know, (laughs) but big, huge, odd trowel became super useful. Everyone was asking for it all the time. They're like, dude, where's dude? We need where's the big trowel? Like we started to use it for like almost shoring up the walls when the walls started to fall in. We're like, oh my God, where's the big trowel? You know, and you'd like put it up on the wall to keep the dirt from falling in. You could make big scoops with it. So I just remember that one being awesome. And and for myself, I'm like, dude, I got to order a big trowel. Mm-hmm. So I'm ordering one. Again, that was just an example of something I thought worked really great that nobody has. Nice. So the the big trial secret is take a large masonry trial and then grind it down. So take that huge one, yeah, the one that's like a foot long, and then grind it down and make sure that you have one that's like the tang is fully forged. Don't get the right. one that's welded on, right? Right. Because this what is- happens is you, I have one of these giant trowels. It has yeah. it, you can use it with two hands. It's like a two handed right. trowel. So yeah. when you're digging straight down yeah. through rock and stuff like that, you can just slam down with two hands, mm-hmm. uh, and it's much stronger than a little one because you just you grind it down. You know what's supposed to be a foot long trowel into one, you know, super trowel basically. Right. Right. The super trowel. I like for you know evening out the wall. Mm-hmm. before you move on to the next level. And so having a shorter trowel, you tend to angle it. Yeah. But when you have a, a longer trowel, so I have a longer trowel too, and I like it because it's almost like you're almost not even using the handle, so to, or you're using the handle on one side and your hand on the other, and you're just kind of bringing it down to really even out that the sidewall on that level before you move on. Yeah. I have one of those, and I, I like it. I, although I would like if I had, if I knew somebody... I'm sure we know everybody knows somebody that welds, but if I actually had the forethought to go and take some and have it so that you almost have a handle on both sides so you could bring it down because that would still, you know, work better. But I right. like the long, the right. long trials. I think you have to have very different trials. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to the whisk broom real quick yeah. because I feel like the whisk broom is something that is really under rated so to speak because especially if you get the company kit like they'll go buy 10 of the cheapest thing they can find and toss it in a bucket right and be like here you go but everybody has their own thing in fact i still have something that we bought in fact it's in our rv it's behind the passenger seat here we actually still use it in the in the rv but it's this whisk broom with this weird kind of handle on it that fits into the actual the the the, i guess the dustpan part of it and but it's just got really good bristles Uh on it it's it's uh it's like vinyl bristles or something like that so it's not like the the wicker ones that just like stay in your unit when you when you when you dust you know but it's got the right end on it it's got the right length of it and in my dig kit i've got a smaller yellow one that's just like the perfect size and i feel like I don't know. I feel like whisk brooms in people's dig kits are almost as special as your trowel. Like it's it's this thing that you have. Everybody's got a different one and it's just uh, underrated. <laughs> People don't talk about them enough. Yeah, totally. I second that. <laughs> I still have mm-hmm. one of my original whisk brooms that I hold near and dear, even though I use it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, that's the one I used yeah. to believe back in 96, man. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that's sad about them is eventually the straw ones, they get down, you know, they break yeah. off and then they get down to really small and then you have to get a new one that's the only sad thing for sure the uh i I think a lot of the tools that we develop over time is just based on the type of materials that we're working in obviously for for people that go across the united states but even in in california there's such a very different types of soils that we work in that you start realizing 
like, you know, was say necessity is the mother of invention. And you start collecting these different little, you know, perfect tools that work for you. For me, you know, I work, I do a lot of, you know, human osteology. And so I'm always looking for something that can, you know, really have that fine um, level of, of excavation. And so, you know, I use either woodworking tools, wood carving tools, or pottery clay tools. Those really work. I, one thing that I love when we're trying to, especially in clay, is uh, picture wire, picture the really heavy duty picture mm-hmm. wire. We oh, had yeah. one burial that we were trying to take it out intact. And we, you know, uh, obviously that's the ideal. And we were able to successfully do it in clay. It was re- really difficult. Clay seems like as it'll keep everything together, but a lot of times it'll crack. And then once it cracks, it takes everything else with it. And now you have broken, you know, bones. And, mm-hmm. but being able to take, we took toe straps, like, like vehicle toe straps, to kind of keep everything in place. And then that picture wire where we just went back and forth. We had two people back and forth until we got all the way underneath it and were able to get a clean cut underneath. And so it's just an example of that's not something you would ever think would be in your excavation toolkit. But now I always have different gauges of picture wire in my excavation kit. And then one more thing that's like a really I, I just kind of discovered this in the last maybe six, seven years, and that is the five gallon bucket from Home Depot. I hate Home Depot, but <laughs> I don't know where else to find it. I absolutely, okay. this is a joke on my team. I literally will not walk into Home Depot. Other people have to walk in there. I, I had a really bad experience and out of principle, I will not walk into Home Depot anymore. But anyway, so it really irks me to have to say that word. But Home Depot has this five gallon bucket dry vac. You put the, the dry vac thing on top of it's meant to fit on a five gallon bucket and then you can either blow wow it's perfect for when you're doing stps you can't get down to the bottom to really clean it out really well sucks it right up it is awesome so i discovered those somebody on our team they didn't use it for they weren't using it for archaeology but they said hey i saw something like this because i was trying to bring one of our wet dry backs out to the field because we we're just having a terrible time making sure that it, the level was clean before we recorded everything and he's like i know they have something like that at home depot and we discovered the wet dry back because one day we had a bunch of boxes that somebody had left from a past archaeologist in this big collection and we had bags of shell and the plastic bags were falling apart. And literally, if you breathed on them, they were falling apart. And now your levels were mixed. And so I went and got the dry, wet dry vac. And we sucked out each bag individually before they dis- disintegrate into nothing. And then all the levels mixed. And it worked like a charm. And then that's what got in my head. I'm like, you know, this would be perfect for cleaning up SCPs or getting that last bit at the 80 centimeter level that you just can't get in there. The shovel just, you can't get the right angle to get everything out. Yeah, it's, I love it. That's one of my favorite tools. In Dude, the that's genius. I, I, I love that one. I also want to give a shout out tool wise to the three pronged pick. Uh, that one seems to not get enough love on lists because everyone on their list has the sort of small East Wing blue pick a hoe. I think we all know that one. It's about a foot long, you know, but there's right next to it in most hardware stores. There's the three pronged one, which is which is, you know, similar size. They're small. But those to me seem to get a ton of use on the archaeology project you know the students are always like where's the three-prong one so 
the three prong picked is, is really good. As Heather talked about before, you know, there's different types of soils and this kind of thing. But in certain soils, the three prong one just is fantastic over the classic single prong pick. Was, this is just brought up by something Heather mentioned about the different soils and stuff. And it is, it's something I've noticed uh, working internationally. In the UK, they use a much smaller trowel and much thicker. Uh, and that's mainly because you end up with a lot of clays, which in the United States, I'd say the default is everyone says go with a Marshalltown. Mm-hmm. But Marshalltowns tend to be longer blades and thinner. And if you're trying to dig through clay, I mean, you pretty much a lot of times you'll end up bending your trowel before you actually do anything uh, useful with it. So in the UK, they use a, a smaller one. But there is also sand in the UK. And so it's amazing, like, you know, they're still using their small little WHS ones. And I'll go through sand and, you know, with a longer, bigger trowel. It was just because we were talking about big trowel blades earlier. It just like cuts through butter and with sand and it's perfect. Like, you know, a Marshalltown is amazing for sandy soils. It's great. You know, actually, probably even depending on how sandy it is, go with even bigger trowel. I know uh, Bill was joking, well, semi-joking and saying, you know, grind down the big trowels. But, you know, man, it looks ridiculous. You will look (laughs) super, super clownish using those. But like in dunes where you're, you're, you're not really looking for too much context because it's all windblown anyways. Those things are amazing Mm -hmm. to just like, just dig straight through, I don't know, like you're, I don't know, a gopher or something like that. It's just, it's it's incredible how quickly you can do it. Yeah. Along the idea of trowels, man, guys, you you need to work like in Germany. So we did a, a, videos will be coming out a little while. We did like these little, for a project, uh, Cross European project, different tools and how to use them for archaeology and whatnot. And we did a little special one on special tools like German trowels. And they have a whole range of like, I, I okay, the names are all in German. And I'm not going to butcher it here, but like crazy ones were like, so you know how like typical trowel, you have a handle and then you basically have. The, the blade in between there is the, the lift you have on basically your hold. Mm-hmm. There's one where it, it curves back and goes forward and it's not a pointed trowel. They have a whole bunch of different ones. They were interesting. Uh, I think it's, you know, if you got experience with them, it would be really cool. I will look up the term because I can't remember it. But the one thing that really impressed me is instead of like a normal hoe for using they have this one that's basically almost a curved half moon shaped and that is really it basically just cuts through the soil and i will try to get it for the show notes for chris and put it in there so you guys will probably have to go to the show notes to look it up and see what i'm describing because i can't remember off the top of my head i'll try to google it while we still have time but that tool Oh man, that that was a, a a fun one to actually get to try out and play with. Is it like a a, f- a foot long or whatever, like half a meter long? Is it a little hand thing? Yeah, or a, yeah. Or a full size. Well, so you can you can do both. So also, like I didn't even know this, but uh, in Germany they also have so you know, like a typical hoe will probably have like a meter seventy five long handle, but yeah. then they also have essentially they've cut the handle down to I don't know not even a meter and so basically it's 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 like if you just like took a a hoe and you cut the handle in half um and so they use that and that that actually works quite well it sucks on your 
for your back, but like with clay, um, <laughs> clay soils, if you're using that to like clean a surface, you just get so much more force than if you had, say, like one of the longer handle hose. So yeah, like my experience with like odd, I say odd tools in Germany, they're just like, yeah, that, that's normal. <laughs> what you do is just weird. But yeah, those, those are my experiences with those. Those are quite, quite fun and quite useful, but they don't actually sell them in the UK. So you, you kind of have to like, I don't know, get special orders to bring them in. Nice. Well, I think, hey, Doug, I think that half moon little hand one is Japanese. So I put a link in, we can put this link in the show notes too, because I've only ever seen those things in the uh, Japanese garden supply store. I, I actually linked to a couple of those, those small Japanese hose, gardening hose, they have like a 50 centimeter long handle at most, or maybe even shorter, but there are those ones that have the half moon curved handle. That's amazing for cutting. I mean, it just cuts straight down through trenches and stuff. And then the, the little one with a flat end, that's kind of like, uh, you know, as if you just cut a regular garden hoe in half, when you're in a trench, you got to cut the handle on almost everything. Cause the thing is only like, you know, half a meter wide. So that little garden hoe can go down through clay really well. So when you're in a trench, that's, you know, up to your waist, that thing is, is really awesome. But I've only ever seen them at the Japanese stores before. Yeah. That thing's pretty cool. Just looking at it online here, that link you sent over, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. So we will pick this up on the other side. We're at the end of another segment back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. All right, welcome back to the third and final segment of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 231. And hey, just a quick note on trials, too. One thing I got from somebody who was bringing some stuff back from the UK and kind of taking orders a long time ago was what I've always called a leaf trowel. It's just a silver kind of thing, no wood on it or anything like that, one solid piece of metal. But it's it's probably about, I don't know, a foot long, and it's about a tiny trowel on one end, like a tiny little maybe inch and a half, two-inch trowel on one end, and maybe not even that long, to be honest. And then the other end is like a flat, square-ended, kind of like a margin trowel. And I'm, I love it. It's a, a leaf and bar. Um, yeah, that's what it's called. So, um, okay. yeah, it's a yeah. The the smaller trowel end is the leaf, and then the bar is the back end. And sometimes you can just mm-hmm. get a leaf trowel without the bar. But yeah, that's a another sort of common tool. You know, when you're doing more delicate work, bone pottery stuff mm-hmm. like well, actually not pottery. Well, actually, bo- I don't know. So we probably should talk about this. Is actually. I don't know, it, it could be different in different parts of the world, but with wet soils and whatnot, you're supposed to, in the UK, try to use wood tools hmm. when working with bone and pottery, depending on the age, because it's less likely to scratch the materials. So you use a softer hand, you know, a softer blade, as it were. Um, and yeah. most of those end up just being like pottery tools. Like you, you just get like a, a set of wood yeah. pottery tools and you use That's those. Yeah, um, and yeah, it keeps it preserves it, but yeah, it, it depends. So you know, 
older pottery that's not glazed and whatnot, that will crumble really easily. But I, I think we still pretty much use trowels for you know your mo- more modern stuff because it's it's hard enough that it's not going to damage it. But we do tend to use the woods for more fragile materials. Yeah. Right. Right. We do that in Belize too, you know, with the, with uh, digging with burials and this kind of thing. And it it used to be, you you hear popsicle sticks all the time, but I'm a big tongue depressor fan. So it's actually kind of fun and interesting to go into your favorite doctor's office and be like, Hey man, um, do you have any extra tongue depressors? You know? And, and when they ask why, and you tell them it's for archeology, span they usually get really excited. So I, recommend yeah. people in archaeology to remember when you go to the doctor ask for some tongue michaels or michaels <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> they actually people, yeah yeah they yeah. if you it's easier but you know uh, but there's it, no story least, there yeah, man exactly, fun. exactly i know it's a lot more fun <laughs> um i actually i honestly have had on a tool run to a hardware store actually had i said we have a list we have to get this, this, and this, and this, and we needed one of we needed one of those big plastic lockers, along with a varied other things, moving blankets and things like that. It was for a burial, and and for the storage of a burial until we could rebury. And this person actually said the person who was helping us collect it really, really fast said, "Are you guys like?" doing something with a body or something. <laughs> that was the funniest. I never, I always thought in the back of my mind, nice. I wonder, it's two things you wonder on a survey. Are you going to find remains someday on a survey, right? Modern remains. And number two, yeah. are you ever going to be accused of ha- trying to hide a body with all the tools, tools and things like that, that you, that you collect in, you know, uh, that you're buying at a hardware store. So um, mm-hmm. I've had the second happen. Never had the first happen yet. Not yet. <laughs> I I want to talk just really quickly about the different types of shovels. I, I remember in the beginning, I was told by somebody, you have to Ooh. use this shovel. Like, this is the only <laughs> shovel, you know, that you have. And I literally, in our truck, the collection of all the tools that we have in the field truck, there's got to be seven, eight different types of shovels and i think those are they're really important for uh one of the important reasons is leverage leverage and angles are really important and that's actually also a good reason for buying different types of tools the smaller tools are because the angles and the the leverage that you need you never know what feature you're trying to work around and so having something a tool that's longer uh, like a longer trowel really does help when you're trying to get in somewhere that's difficult at a weird angle, it's farther away from you. You can only reach it. Your hand can't reach in there, but you need a tool that's longer, but still delicate, that kind of thing. And so for the same thing with shovels, I think having a myriad of different types of shovels are important. Number one, your crew, everybody, if they don't have their shovels, hopefully everybody brings, but sometimes it happens. We have people that fly across the country and they can't bring a shovel with them. And so, you know, I have lots of different types of shovels so that the person, at least somebody can find something that somewhat resembles what they really like to use at home. And then also there's, there's very different uses. And then also I really like measuring, not only having a typical measuring tape, obviously, and there's a myriad of different measuring tapes, but I like marking, marking all my tools with measurements because that helps in the field shovels. I have very long screwdriver that I like to use that I have a measurement on it. The nine inch nails, I have measurements on those. Those really come in handy. I think being able to augment your tools to work for you 
it's, it's definitely a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and also just in terms of the saving of your own back, you know, just that angle of digging, everyone's different. So somebody, some people need the longer, you, you know, handle. Some people just really dig the shorter handle. Just it's whatever keeps that comfort over the hours, you know, is, is what I've seen. Mm-hmm. You know, I have. I have an, an another one in the in the digging world when you're collecting the dirt. So often we just use like dust pans, you know, or whatever. But I have to say, if you guys can find a coal scoop or similar, like those things just rock. And and the ones the ones I've yeah. used, which is very rare, they're maybe like eight inches on a side. They're square. They have high sides, which mm-hmm. makes them so much better than a regular old dustpan. The, the, by high sides, I mean maybe three inches tall, maybe three and a half inches tall. All made out of steel, really strong. And then the handle goes inward, if that makes sense. You're sort of holding it over the top, but the handle is pointing forward. And then it's just this sort of hmm. s- flat square scoop. And those are my favorite things of all time to dig with when you have to pull the dirt out. I didn't know what the name of that was. Yeah, I, I, I'm actually not even a hundred percent sure. That's the best I could do because I've seen I've seen projects where people yeah. actually even make them from scratch. But I believe coal wow. scoop is the closest that descriptive term. We're talking about odd tools. I don't know if it's necessarily odd, but I guess maybe I'm a <laughs> maybe I'm just a brute force, a brute out there, right? And when it comes to shovel probes and stuff, like especially trying to get down to glacial till or through you know redeposited glacial till, right? So it's somebody's dug a huge hole and then redeposited it. And now you're there 70 years later trying to bust through all these cobbles and stuff, the breaker bar. And, you know, I guess it only works out cause I'm like 240 pounds. So that thing is not super heavy for me or whatever, but just the power of slamming straight down like that through cobbles and other stuff like that. I mean, there's not another tool that's like that, but, a, you know, like a six foot long San Angelo bar is what its real name is, but the breaker bar. I love breaker bars. I think (laughs) the one thing to use breaker bars carefully for your own body. And also obviously people are like, why are you, you know, breaker bars. It's so destructive. Well, I have an argument for that, but first, as far as your body goes, angling is important. You have to angle the bar. You can't go straight down. You go straight down and you have to let go of the bar right before it hits the ground. Mm-hmm. So you're using the momentum and the weight of the breaker bar mm-hmm. to, to get that, to, to get it into the dirt and then using both sides. I like the breaker bars that have the pointed end on one eye, one and end flat. and have the flat on the other. Mm-hmm. So you can use both and then working your way from the middle out. So you're kind of just breaking it up, breaking it up, breaking it up. And then, and then also understanding that the breaker bar is not meant to go all the way through. It's meant to just mm-hmm. break up the top couple inches. And people, you know, I've had people watching and say, oh, well, you can't, you know, that's really destructive. You're going to break something. Well, a shovel does the same thing. And I actually mm-hmm. have taken it one step further in really hard soils, but there's no freaking way you're going to get like, you'd be lucky if you get one STP be done before lunch. Okay. Yeah. We just, it's not going to happen is getting, I know people are going to cringe when I say this, but getting the power breakers. Now you don't want the 80 inch one. You don't want the 60. I think the 40 inch power breaker, we have a generator with us so that we don't have to worry about plugging in. Those are, especially if you can get the ones with the tips, 
there's very there's different types of tips. So you have the those flat parts, tip, the wide yeah, flat thing, the scoop yeah. tip, everything, and they're interchangeable. Yeah. You can they're they're like bits, right? You put them on the ones that you need. I want to buy one. Our company to buy one, but <laughs> do I you, usually do just, you just rent those. Do you I rent it. Else? Yeah, I rent uh-huh. it, and it's like yeah. fifty dollars a day. And I'm telling you, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. And if you are careful with it, you can do it and just be impacting like the first inch, like. We I have certain people on on the cruise that are really good with those those power yeah. power breakers, and there are others that are deathly afraid of them and never want to touch yeah. them, which is fine because you have people that love it and people that hate it. And but they work really well because you can get through the dirt. And the idea is not to be scooping the dirt out with the breaker or like I think people have this idea of seeing construction worker on the corner mm-hmm. like really breaking into you know pavement, but it that's not. That's not the way people need to be a little bit more open-minded. They're really a great tool for getting through really, really, really hard dirt. Well, some of these urban soils and like, you know, these like fill layers and stuff and urban soils that have bricks and other stuff, you know, I I don't even know how you're going to get through that kind of stuff when it's super dry, super compacted urban lot, like something that used to be under a parking lot for 40 years. You're not going to. I don't, I don't yeah. know how with just a little shovel, you're going to be plinking away for days basically to get one shovel probe yeah. in. Right. But what you're talking about, you know, that power breaker, you know, that thing is going to get through there in like 15 minutes. And then yeah. you can dig up, yeah. then you can dig a probe down once you're through the hard stuff. And right. people who grow faint over hearing the word power breaker, they've never been there. You know what I mean? It's Bingo. like, yes. I'm there. we've been yes. there at the dirt where you're like, or, oh my God, nothing. And they've never had the experience of dropping a big, huge breaker bar on dirt and like nothing happens. You know? But, or, so, Andrew, yeah. they actually have used a 60 pound uh, jackhammer and their back is like crooked now. And then they hear <laughs> another say, hey, we're going to pull out the power breaker bill. And you're like, oh, no, no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> But I, nice. I, I love the idea of just, you know, like thinking big on this stuff, because I think especially people listening to this who might be new to archaeology, you know, to realize that there are other tools, you know, you're not going to be using a power breaker tomorrow, but beyond just right. the trowel, you, you know, or beyond that little list, it's okay. It's okay if you're using some of this other stuff. There's nothing unethical or wrong about using tools if they happen to work well. You have to adapt. Yes. I mean, here we, here we are. I mean, I, I'm going to get really kind of, I don't know, existential or whatever. I, we're, we're studying culture, right? And we're studying how culture adapts. And we study how technology changes over time. And why does it change over time? Because what we were using before doesn't work for mm-hmm. what we're trying to do right now. Or mm-hmm. somebody comes up with a better idea. So why are we going to stick with the Marshall Town? Which in some cases... It's great. It works yeah. for that I, I instance. Actually, I like the Marshall Town a lot. Old school classic. I, I do too. I have one. Yeah. I love it. It's a mainstay. You always, that's one yeah. thing you always have and you always use. Mm-hmm. But you have to be flexible and you have to, you have to go in there, especially in CRM. And it's not, people are, it's not about being willy nilly about, oh, we just got to get through the dirt. That's not what it is. Right. 
in CRM, the reason people I think are a little bit more open to using different tools in CRM rather than um, academia is because in academia, they tend to work in the same areas all the time because that's what their focus is. In CRM, we're working on a myriad of different types of environments, which mm -hmm. then create different types of stratigraphy right. and compaction of soils. And you have to be solving the problem. You got to work the yeah. problem. And when you're in the field, you got to get creative. I will stand up for academia for a second, though. And I will say in working in a place like Belize or whatever, we definitely use whatever works. And I've used all kinds of weird stuff yeah. in the jungle. What I mean, the difference between academia and CRM is that with academia, you've worked in Belize. So you have gone it down to a science. You've been working in Belize for how many years? Right. So you know what really works in Belize <laughs> right. in CRM. You could be in a profession. You could work in so many different types of soils from week to week to month to month that you have to get flexible and you oh, can't get you like mean. narrow minded. Yeah. The sort of there's yeah, a little bit more I mean. movement. Yeah. Okay. So, hey, just real quick, if Marshalltown, if you're listening, we will gladly accept advertising or sponsorship. <laughs> totally. You know, yes. Just just putting that out there. Okay, everybody, if you haven't read it already, if somebody hasn't already told you to read it, if you're a student or you were a student and you haven't read The Golden Marshalltown, I must, oh. must read. So you must read it. Marshalltown no is yeah. the fender of archaeological instruments. Okay, you have fender guitars. <laughs> it's Marshalltown trials. Okay, they're that good. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nice. And if, nice. And if you're not an archaeologist, I'm, I'm going to go out there. You're not an archaeologist if you haven't read Golden Marshall. Golden Marshall. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you have not read that, you're not an archaeologist. That's just what I'm going to say. Nice. So nice. Hopefully that'll trigger people. <laughs> Slightly going back from storybook tools to uh, real tools, I'd also like to add some of these tools is also about like saving your crew and yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could take, you could do a lot of stuff manually or, you know, with uh, lesser tools to be more delicate, but like, it's just going to tear through your body. Like if you're going through like huge cobbles with a trowel and trying to dig through clay and rubble and it's, it's going to, it'll destroy your wrists. And then after it destroys mm -hmm. your wrists, it'll destroy your elbow and your shoulder and your back like i mean it, it's just it's brutal and yeah sometimes okay it may not be the most delicate of tools and maybe you there is a risk that i mean the amount of stories about people who have like hit a uh put a, a pickaxe through a skull and you know pulled it out and there it was stuff like that there's quite a few archaeologists have that story but man like i you know spending a week like trying to dig through rubble with which with the equivalent of like a spoon it's like barbaric i mean it, it's it's horrendous what what you have to do and sometimes yeah you, you might slightly damage a context whatnot if you're mm -hmm. using a bigger harder tool but i'd i'd rather damage a context when i say damage i don't know i've never actually have ever damaged a context you see it in the profile maybe you slightly overdig a little bit it's okay you know it's it's not what perfect to what someone wants but it you can get the same information that is always worth it to save your body because i mean there are yeah. so many archaeologists who basically quit because arthritis at 30 on whatever pick out 
pick some sort of joint and they've picked it up because they've basically been <laughs> either they've done it themselves to themselves or they haven't been provided with the right equipment and yeah it destroys you so yeah i don't know to, to the whole like breaker bar argument i would say like anytime that you can use something that's going to like save your body mm-hmm. use it use it a hundred percent and yeah. oh my god if you're Absolutely. using a breaker bar just wear gloves that's what i learned man wear gloves with the breaker yeah. bar yeah all right guys this has been fantastic uh send us in your comments and suggestions wherever you see this podcast of your crazy favorite weird tools we didn't even get to talk about my favorite of this archaeologist that would use this uh, monopod table thing that he would literally carry around the desert so he could stand in the middle of a site and map it by hand. That was amazing. Like a wooden old school table. Uh, yeah. It's a plane table. That rules. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Chris is a plane table. Yeah, but um, he like hiked around with it in the desert. That's yeah, awesome. They're still, they're still used by a lot of like community groups in the UK because yeah, super cheap. And if you don't have... Well, now everyone uses GPS, but yeah. you know, a total station back in the day, uh, and by back in the day, a couple of years ago, um, yeah, and yeah. both GPS and total stations are super expensive. But a plane table, pretty easy. I don't know, yeah, under a hundred, hundred pounds, hundred bucks, yeah. probably less. Super, super easy, and the concepts basically the same, just a bit old school. Yeah, yeah, indeed. All right, so as I said. Send us in, send us in your suggestions. Maybe we'll do another episode that's crowdsourced, listener sourced, at weird tools that you've used in the field. All right, with that, we are done with this episode, and we'll be back next time with something just as interesting. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at archpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks not to Doug, but to the listeners for tuning in. And we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. I get a rest. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Too. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Chris, I gave you a normal one in there, too. Yeah. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Come.